friends, it's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're here with just the zoo of us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we take your favorite animals and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, but we do a lot of research and we try to get it right the first time. And if not, the second or maybe third. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I do have a follow-up <laughs> to the last episode we did together. This was not coordinated. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It is a love and comment. Great. Yes. So last time you joined me for an episode together, you talked about the wombat. Yes. And during our conversation about wombats, we talked about their long, sharp claws, specifically as a reason you might not want to hug a wombat because they can get you with yeah. those big, sharp claws. Uh-huh. So a friend on Twitter with the name Sweet Aster chimed in and said, Hey, guys, loved your last episode. I grew up on a wildlife refuge with lots of wombats. Oh. And I just want to assure you that they never use their claws to hurt you just to dig. But they bite like absolute little demons. <laughs> <laughs> so it is different pointy bits that you have to worry okay. about for the wombat. I, I think we kind of implied that the wombat would scratch you with their claws if you were to try to show some, some affection towards it. <laughs> I don't remember remember if I went into this or not, but I came across something that's talked about if something's trying to get at them in a burrow from their rear, they'll mm-hmm. do something like a donkey kick with their hind legs. I think the thing is that they will slam their butt against the thing. That too. I've heard that they will like slam the intruder up against like the walls of the tunnel with their butt. Okay. So I think their uh, main lines of defense are the thick booty and their teeth, but mm. not their claws, as I think we implied. Okay. But yeah, I just found that really interesting that someone chimed in with some wombat experience. It's good stuff. Thank you. Absolutely. And thank you for reaching out, friend. So Christian, it is your turn to go first this week. We have torn ourselves away for a brief break from Pokemon Legends Arceus <laughs> to bring you guys an episode this week. And it was tough. It, it was, was tough to break away from. On that grind. I know. We both are. So, the animal I bring this week is the common green iguana. I'm so excited about this. Yes, scientific name. One of my favorite kinds, iguana iguana. Love it. You love to see it. (laughs) This was a soft pitch for you, huh? (laughs) Short. Easy to pronounce. Easy to remember. (laughs) (laughs) It's concise. It's to the point. They didn't beat around the bush with this one. So, this species was submitted by almost six-year-old Jack via an email written by his grandmother. Thank you, Jack. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Jack's grandmother, for transcribing. Excellent teamwork. And Jack, by the way, specifically asked about Florida's frozen iguanas. Yes. And I went into this expecting that to be the only interesting thing about them. I was wrong. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I'm excited to get to that. I'll hold all my stuff in until we get to that. Okay. And the information I'll be using comes from an article titled Dealing with Iguanas in the South Florida Landscape by W.H. Kern Jr., found on UF's IFAS extension website, as well as Animal Diversity Web. Love them. Yes. So let's get into it. What is an iguana? What is an iguana, Christian? (laughs) So I think it's a fairly common thing to know about in the United States, especially our part of the United States. Mm -hmm. So an iguana is a large lizard. Big boy. Yes. And by big, I mean average of 7 kilograms or 15 pounds. So we're talking about small dog. And... 1.75 meters long or 5.7 feet. 
That's including the tail, right? Yes, and the majority of that is tail. It is mostly tail. <laughs> <laughs> Very long tail. Long, like whip-like tail. Yes, yes. Um, so that's why that sounds like a lot of length for not much mass, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, the, the tail is a big reason for that. Yeah, for sure. Have you ever met an iguana in person? Yes. Yes, I have. Yeah? We have together, actually. Oh, yeah. We saw them in Mexico. Yeah, not so much meat as... They were around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I guess I'm talking more like one-on-one, sort of like interacted with an iguana. Yes. It was a young juvenile pet iguana. I mm. don't remember. This was decades ago. I don't know what species it was. but <laughs> It's probably a, a green iguana it's if it was probably. a pet. I was asking because there's a picture of me actually holding an adult green iguana. Mm-hmm. And you're not kidding when you say them's big. <laughs> yeah. They're, and they're heavy. They're like solid. Mm-hmm. And where they can be found is Central and South America, and many islands in the Caribbean region, as well as coastal eastern Pacific. They were introduced to South Florida and Hawaii. So this is, you know, a recurring thing with Florida. We have several species that were introduced and are considered invasive. Yeah, big problem with both Florida and Hawaii. Yes, they belong to the taxonomic family Iguanidae, and of course that includes other iguanas like the marine iguana. Mm, these are really cool guys. Yeah, so you may know of the marine iguanas from countless documentaries. They're a very popular subject in those, you know, those those very high resolution underwater <laughs> videos of them eating stuff off of rocks underwater. Yeah, you'll uh, walk into your nearest Best Buy and <laughs> check out your uh, 4K TV display. You'll probably see some marine iguana yep. footage there. Yep. Or if you're like me and remember that one Godzilla movie. <laughs> Oh, they do look like that, don't they? Well, that was kind of the setup, was the the Godzilla in that movie came from marine iguanas. Oh, really? Yeah. I haven't seen Godzilla. This was, oof. A long time ago. Yeah, and it (laughs) seems my memory was perhaps with, what's what's the phrase, rose-tinted glasses. Mm, Some nostalgia goggles. (laughs) Because looking back at it, I think that was very poorly received by Mm, critics. Got it. (laughs) But anyway, that's where I first remember seeing them. The first time I remember seeing marine iguanas was on Planet Earth 2, on that one episode where the marine iguana is like running across the sand and the snakes are trying to catch it. Mm -hmm. There's like a particularly dramatic scene with a baby iguana trying to make it to the water with all these snakes chasing after it. (laughs) It's incredibly intense. It is a (laughs) masterpiece of cinematography. (laughs) It's really cool. I really want to see just the raw footage and audio of that. <laughs> like without all the music and dramatic cues and stuff. The you, could slow probably, you could probably hear like the producers behind the camera just hyperventilating because they, <laughs> they know what they're going to turn it into. <laughs> but anyway. They know they've struck gold. <laughs> so I'm going to jump right into our first category, which is effectiveness, which describes physical attributes. And I'm giving a 9 out of 10. That's good yeah, for this big guy. They're very good. So first of all, they are arboreal. So they're mostly found in trees, usually. So they have great climbing skills with their long toes. Yeah, they do have these sort of long toes with these like hook-shaped mm-hmm. sort of nails at the end of them. Yep. Great for climbing. Very slender toes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we mentioned their tail already, but that is a very strong tail that they mm. will sometimes use to whack. To whack people. <laughs> yes. I mentioned that I, I met an adult iguana that, once again, somebody had as a pet. Mm-hmm. And that was what they said, you know, like when handing off the iguana to be handled, they'd be like, hey, watch that tail. That tail will get you. It's like solid muscle. Mm-hmm. They're not particularly you know known for attacking people, but they will defend themselves when cornered or threatened. I mean, wouldn't you? 
I mean, at that size, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> They're looking at you like, I can take that. <laughs> well, also with that tail, it helps them be very strong swimmers. Mm. Yeah, so even though they're not like the marine iguanas, they are still very strong swimmers, which I found pretty interesting. Do they do that thing where they kind of like hug all of their legs close to their body and then kind of like undulate their whole body back and forth? I didn't see that specifically for this species, but that is how I've seen it for other iguanas. Like the marine iguanas. Right. It's it's really strange to see. It's mm-hmm. like they almost like snakeify their body. Well, crocodiles <laughs> do something similar. Yeah. The next thing I want to talk about is their dewlap. Mm, I love this word. <laughs> so the dewlap is what we call that uh, bit of extra skin and such under their chin. And iguanas, they're always visible. It's like a almost like a rooster neck type of dewlap. Whereas other lizards, you can't see it until they extend it out. So our anoles do really funny stuff with their dewlap where yes. they puff it out real big when uh-huh. they're like trying to flex to each other. <laughs> they do. So just like that, the iguanas extends their dewlap when they're defending territory or are frightened. But it's also doubles as heat absorption and dissipation. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. It's kind of jowly, isn't it? Yeah, so that's that's really fleshy. Well, that's the the part where it's always like out to some extent. So that's behaving as a sort of like heat sink type thing. Oh, yeah, that makes sense now that you say that. Mm -hmm. And they have something we've talked about before on this show, which is a parietal eye behind their actual eyes. It's on their skull along that midline, but further back behind their actual eyes, Mm. so that it's pointing up, like straight up at the sky. Yes, love that. Yeah, so we talked about this before, right? Mm-hmm. It is used for detecting shadows above them for airborne predators. Yeah, I was going to say that's helpful if something flies over you and blocks out the sun. Uh, next thing is they're herbivorous. So they mainly eat plant matter. The preferred foods are leafy greens and ripe fruit. Yeah, they love fruit. Mm-hmm. But they'll occasionally eat carrion and invertebrates, particularly younger iguanas that need all that protein in the early years. And kind of related to that, their teeth They are made to tear through plants. They're kind of short, pointy, and serrated. So they will hurt if they bite you. Yeah. (laughs) It's not like those, you know, long fangs that they can sink in or anything like that, but but they're strong. Mm -hmm. And they're so good at getting that sort of side-to-side head motion. Because it's meant to tear, like, leaves Mm. and that kind of thing. Yeah, you don't want to get bit by one. (laughs) (laughs) And perhaps not surprising, they can do what's called autotomatize, which is you can drop part of their tail. So that's common in, in lizards. I didn't know that it was something that iguanas could do, but they can. So if they're trying to escape you know, a predator or something, they can drop their tail to confuse their predator. <laughs> Cause, yeah. Because by the time the predator figures out what's going on, you know, the, the iguanas had a chance to get away. Yeah, because when they drop the tail, in other lizards at least, mm-hmm. the tail like wiggles around for a little bit after they drop it. So the predator has this moment where it's like hold on what's this (laughs) what's this all about but here's the important thing can they grow the tail back yes as an important second step (laughs) yeah so yes they can grow it back it'll be fully grown back within a year but not to the same length Mm. that it was okay you don't get to uh continue from your last save with the tail right (laughs) (laughs) which is good that they get it back because it's pretty important for the things they do 
Yeah, I was asking because recently I talked with Dominique DeFalco about mm. crested geckos who can drop their tail, but then that's it. It doesn't grow back. <laughs> one and done. Yeah, <laughs> it's just the one. Uh, next thing I want to talk about is they are ectothermic, as most reptiles are, which means their body temperature is highly dependent on the environment temperature. So they can't, uh, like humans do, they can't warm themselves up using their own metabolism and such. So what that means for them is they need to bask in sunny areas to warm up. You can see them doing this a lot. Yes, this is probably 99% of the time. If you see one, this is what they're doing. (laughs) Well, that's the thing, you know, with reptiles or, you know, any animal really that's ectothermic since their body isn't generating the heat that they need. Mm. They aren't expending as much energy, so they don't need as much input, right? So, like, that's how you get these, like, snakes, when they're fully grown, can go weeks or months at a time with no food, Uh right? Because they're not using all of that energy to keep their body warm, so they don't need to eat as frequently. So, it's kind of a trade-off. So... Along those lines, because they're ectothermic, their appetite and digestion requires warmer temperatures. Oh, I see. Yeah. So they might eat a meal and they need to warm up to properly digest it. Uh, So being endothermic, sorry, ectothermic comes back into play as to what Jack was asking about. Yes. (laughs) But I will touch on that. So just one more thing before I do. Their skin changes color to help with thermoregulation. Mm. So there'll be a darker color in the morning when their bodies are colder to help absorb the heat when they need it. And then as it gets through the day, that coloration lightens up by midday to minimize heat absorption. I think... Our green anoles here do this, too. That makes sense. Where, like, throughout the day, they'll shift from, like, brown all the way up to bright green. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, like, you'll see the the same exact anole will look like a different animal depending on what time of day you see it because they shift from dark brown to green. I'll have to keep a sharper eye out for that. I didn't know that iguanas do that, too, though. That's really cool. Yeah. So, finally, all this coming... To the main topic. Yes. Iguanas falling out of trees. <laughs> You'd be surprised at how many people have asked me about this because, you know, I mentioned yes. pretty often that, you know, we're, we're, we live in Florida mm-hmm. and so everybody wants to know about the frozen iguanas. So just to note, their native range is much closer to the equator than most of Florida. Even the, the most southern tip of Florida is still further away from the equator from you know parts of their range in South America. Mm-hmm. So what that means is because they they are here in Florida and you know the further south they are the better they do because we're in the northeast part of Florida we don't have iguanas here. Right, we do not have any here. Yeah, that's because. It just gets too cold too often for them to be here. It freezes. Yeah. And when it freezes, they don't have a chance. And even that's maybe a once or twice a year thing, but still too much. Like we just a couple weeks ago had our first freeze Mm -hmm. of this season. Yep. So what'll happen is they're in Southern Florida, which usually they don't have to worry about this, but sometimes, you know, we'll have new weather or, you know, particular systems that push a big cold front down to Southern Florida. And then when it drops below the 40 degrees, the, you know, the freezing range, the iguanas that do live there get too cold to where they can even, they, they can no longer move or hold on to branches. So like I mentioned, these are arboreal lizards. So they're already <laughs> in the trees. Probably, they were probably already in a tree. Mm-hmm. So what'll happen is, you know, this cold front hits 
they're not exactly expecting it. So it's not like they can say, oh, a cold front's coming in. I better go onto the ground. Right. Because it comes in, they get too cold. They no longer are able to hold onto this, onto the tree or the branch that they're on and then they just fall. Yeah. And as the temperature's dropping, you know, they're slowing down. Right. So it's not like they can be like, oh, it's getting really cold. Better move really quickly. They can't. Yeah. Like the colder it gets, the slower they move. Yep. So it's really difficult for them to be strategic mm-hmm. about that. So, yep, they'll uh, slow down, fall out of a tree. Still not moving. So when, when this happens, people will find them just like lying in a street, a sidewalk, a lawn, wherever. So news articles and such I've seen will say, you know, this usually does not harm them. Though I'm sure there are cases where if they are high enough up, gravity will win. You still do take fall damage. <laughs> yeah. It's still going to happen. Um, and of course, they might fall into a hazardous area, particularly if it's a road, right? Right. Or into a pool or or somewhere where predators can get to them easily i have seen quite a few stories of people's cars being parked underneath trees and then their windshield being broken yeah. by a falling iguana yeah i can see that 15 pounds of <laughs> yeah lizard. that just thunks down on your windshield <laughs> shatters it yeah. yeah it doesn't take much yeah but the majority of the time they just like once it warms up they just you know thaw out and scutter away yeah true So I've seen pictures of people that have kind of like moved them to place them into the sun so Mm. that they warm up quicker. That's a good idea. It's kind of like helping a turtle cross the road. (laughs) Just put your iguana in the sun. (laughs) So yeah, that's what the whole deal is about. Uh, Not something we've experienced personally again because we just don't have iguanas in the first place in our part of the state. Yeah. Not something we have to worry about. Mm -hmm. But some people think that over time... As our winters get warmer, if we stop having those regular freezes, that may open our area up to more invasive reptiles like iguanas and uh, Burmese pythons and other large critters like that. Because right now those occasional freezes keep a lot of different things further south than us. (laughs) Yeah, but if it doesn't freeze as often, then, you know, it could be free real estate for them. (laughs) So yeah, I hope that satisfies Jack's curiosity on that subject. Yeah. Moving on to our second category of ingenuity. And this describes smart things, could be tool use, could be tactics, mm. communication, that sort of thing. I'm giving it a 7 out of 10. That's pretty good. They have social interactions. Yeah. They are head bobbing. The dewlap extensions that we talked about. That's part of, you know, they're communicating to each other, usually in a combative way. But Oh, yeah. <laughs> they're flexing for the boys a little bit. <laughs> when they get territorial. Yeah. And also scent marking. So that's their forms of social interaction. So far, a lot of the things you said remind me a lot of like our anoles, just mm-hmm. like scaled up. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah. And another thing that I thought was neat is that they avoid predators by fleeing into water. So what they like to do is they like to hang out in trees whose branches are over a body of water, you know, so that if something does get to them, they're able to just jump off and right into the water and they're out. That makes sense because the likelihood that something that's attacking them in a tree Mm -hmm. would also then be able to transition into the water and also be effective there. Like that's not, it's not super likely. Unless it's a jaguar, and then you're out of luck. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) which would be a a predator in its native range in those parts of South America. Right. Not here, though. Uh, That's part of the problem is, you know, these animals that are introduced to Florida are used to this kind of climate, but we don't have the same kind of predators. Right. Well, I guess here, 
if you drop down into the water, that's when your biggest problems begin. <laughs> that's where all of our scary stuff is. <laughs> yeah. You were way safer in the tree, my friend. <laughs> I thought it was deep, though. Yeah. And then on to our final category of aesthetics. This is how interesting or cute they look. And again, another 7 out of 10. They are called the green iguana, but they can be found in other colors, uh, like yellow and brown. That's yeah. not a far stretch from green. It's not. <laughs> And their colors become more uniform with age. So when they're younger, you can see spotches or banding in their coloration. Yeah, they're beautiful. But as they get older, that becomes less contrasted. The one that I got to be up close and personal with was quite old. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, it's funny because now that I was thinking about it, I remember his name was Godzilla. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think... They're beautiful. I probably would have given it higher than, <laughs> would you say a seven? Yeah. I probably would have given it higher if it was me. I get it, though. I think they're really nice. I feel yeah. like they have a peaceful sort of look to them. They have these dermal spines, right? Mm. So these are the spines that run along their back, like from like their neck-ish area and then all yeah. the way down. Spikes. So, yeah. I mean, they're, they're soft. They're, they're, they're not like going to stab you or anything. No, they're not like sharp. Yeah. I don't know. It's aesthetically off-putting to me a little bit. Really? Just a little bit. I feel like it's like the selling point. It's cool. I don't know. It is very cool. <laughs> it looks very dinosaur-like. Yeah. Um, and then finally, for aesthetics, the one of the one of the sources described their dewlap as pendulous. Pendulous. <laughs> That's not flattering <laughs> at all. I don't like that <laughs> word used as a descriptor of a pendulous dewlap. I'm gonna use that as a burn set someday. <laughs> you get your pendulous dewlap out of my face. Gross. <laughs> That's nasty. I it hate is. that. Why'd you say that? It's the worst. <laughs> That's the worst pairing of words you've ever said on this show. <laughs> Mm. While you were doing notes, you mentioned that someone said they were mistaken for alligators. That iguanas were like misidentified as alligators. Not this species, but another one. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I get if you're not super familiar with gators, I get you might see a big lizard mm -hmm. and think, oh, that must be what a gator is. I can see that. Their conservation status is of least concern. Quite the opposite. According to a 2016 IUCN assessment. They're doing too good, one would say. <laughs> but here's something interesting. Their eggs and meat have been eaten by humans since pre-colonial times in their range. That makes sense. Yeah. And actually, I think one of their Spanish names translates to chicken of the trees. Oh, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So what's particularly interesting is in, in terms of conservation. So females are easy to catch while they're nesting. And unfortunately, that nesting occurs at the same time as Catholic Lent in many areas. Uh -huh. So Catholicism is a popular religion in that part of the world mm -hmm. because of colonialism. From Spain. Yes. But where this is important is um, for those that aren't familiar, as I was perhaps 15 minutes ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> part of Lent for many practitioners involves abstaining from eating meat, with the exception of white meat. And reptiles, along with amphibians, are considered white meat. So you could have these Catholic Christians that aren't 
able to eat things like beef, but then they have the option of iguanas during Lent. It's an option. <laughs> and they're easy to catch. <laughs> well, there you go. I am seeing an opportunity to solve the invasive species problem. <laughs> I think this angle should be pushed a lot more. <laughs> but uh, this has led to you know some over-harvesting um, to the point where I think I've read in that assessment by IUCN that in Colombia, it's actually led to a an off ratio of male to female oh. <laughs> because they're catching the females as they're nesting. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's true. That will kind of screw things up a little yeah. bit. Um, they're also over-harvested for the pet trade, extremely popular in the pet trade in the United States. Yeah, they're big and, like, impressive, mm-hmm. you know? Like, they're so, like big and spiny, and they yeah. look like a cool dinosaur, but they're also, like, really chill. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say, if anyone's really considering them as a pet, do your research. They they still require, you know, a particular range of temperature and lighting. And, and they're massive. Yeah, they get big. And in captivity, they can live to be like 20 years old. Yeah. So this is like a major commitment to sharing your life with an iguana. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, loss of habitat is a real threat. So yeah, that is the common green iguana. What a lovely critter. I did learn some new things. That's so cool. Isn't it? When we were uh, briefly in Mexico, it was such a such a treat to see the iguanas. Oh, and Puerto Rico. They were in Puerto Rico, too. Oh, yeah. Um, we saw them on the fort, didn't we? We did. They were like lounging, <laughs> just like splayed out on the walls of the fort. Oh, man. They're gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I just really like their attitude. Like They seem so... You know, with how much of their time they spend just basking in the sun and kind of lazing around, makes me feel good just to see (laughs) them and know that I'm like, that is a great lifestyle. Yeah. They must be as synonymous to like, you know, beach life in those areas. That's true. Yeah. It definitely does have that sort of like beach dad energy. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take a quick break to hear some promos from our friends over on the Maximum Fun Network. And we'll be right back with my animal. Did your neighbor back into your car? Bring that case to Judge Judy. Think the mailman might be the real father? Give that one to Judge Mathis. But does your mom want you to flush her ashes down the toilet at Disney World when she passes away? Now that's my jurisdiction. Welcome to the court of Judge John Hodgman, where the people are real, the disputes are real, and the stakes are often unusual. If I got arrested for dumping your ashes in the Jungle Cruise, it would be an honor. I don't want to be part of somebody getting a super yacht. I don't know at what point you want to go into this, but we've had a worm bin before. Available free right now at MaximumFun.org. Judge John Hodgman, the court of last resort when your wife won't stop pretending to be a cat and knocking the clean laundry over. Hey, kid. Your dad tell you about the time he broke Stephen Dorff's nose at the Kids' Choice Awards? In Dead Pilot Society, scripts that were developed by studios and networks but were never produced are given the table reads they deserve. When I was a kid, I had to spend my Christmas break filming a PSA about angel dust. So yeah, being a kid sucks sometimes. Presented by Andrew Reich and Ben Blacker. Dead Pilot Society, twice a month on MaximumFun.org. You know, the show you like, that hobo with the scarf who lives in a magic dumpster. <laughs> Doctor Who. Yeah. So, what do you bring this week, Ellen? This week, I am talking about the blue marlin. Okay. The scientific name Makaira nigricans, and the species was submitted by Elaine Parker via email. And Elaine mentioned that she listens with her seven-year-old daughter. 
How sweet is that? That's awesome. It's awesome. I love to hear families enjoying animals together. Mm -hmm. And Elaine actually asked for any of the billfish, including swordfish or sailfish. But I chose the marlin specifically because of my personal connection to them. Do you want to hear what it is? (laughs) Is it a sports thing? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's hear it. But maybe not what the average listener may be expecting. The only sports team that I have ever played on (laughs) in my life... Was a t-ball team with the mascot, the Marlins. Okay. I was five years old <laughs> and living in Bellevue, Washington. And um, this is the only time I will ever get an excuse to talk about this on this podcast. Uh-huh. But at one point, while I was playing t-ball oh. for the Marlins, <laughs> I did play against another t-ball team, which contained Bill Gates's daughter. Mm-hmm. And I played against her. And he was there, and he was displeased with how much I was talking to her. (laughs) Because I've always been like this. So, like, I was, like, trying to chat with, like, everybody within about a five-foot radius of me. Sure. So, at one point, um, she was close enough to me that I began striking up a conversation. um, And he was quite frustrated that I was trying to distract her from the game as though it was an act of sabotage. (laughs) Galaxy Brain Baseball. (laughs) (laughs) I was five. In 2000. Yeah, he was really mad at me about that. So that's my celebrity encounter with Bill Gates. And then he acquired Bethesda. That was actually the sequence of events that started with uh, me making him mad. That's the only time I'm ever going to get to tell this story. So I really had to seize my opportunity. Okay. Okay, back to the animal. I'm gathering my information on the blue marlin from a variety of sources, including billfish.org, NOAA, and OAA, and also an article titled Blue Marlin Mystique Unlocking the Secrets of an Epic Revolutionary by Scott Bannerow for Marlin Magazine in May of 2018. And also some other sources that I'll cite as they come up. Okay, so if you don't know what a marlin is, It is a really big fish Mm -hmm. with a long pointy nose, like a needle. They're kind of this like cobalt blue on top and then a silvery white on the bottom. Classic. Classic ocean fish look. But with a lot of ocean creatures that have that sort of coloration, there's like a gradient of like the blue to white where it kind of fades from blue into white. With the marlin, it is a solid line. (laughs) Like there is no fade whatsoever. It is just blue straight to white, which makes it kind of an interesting like high contrast sort of look. Their dorsal fin connects to this sort of ridge that runs down the back of the fish and it looks almost like a mohawk. And Mm. I think that's pretty cool. They're pretty recognizable. Like, you'd, you'd know one when you see it. Unless you don't really, like, know what marlins are, you might just think it's like a swordfish. If you've ever been to a seafood restaurant, it's probably had a fake one mounted on the wall somewhere. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if you see, like, a giant taxidermied fish, it's probably a marlin. Or have ever seen a, what's that artist's name? Who does the fish shirts? Guy Harvey? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, probably. That's the Mona aesthetic. Lisa. That's the exact aesthetic, too. So blue marlins are huge. Like I said, the females specifically can get up to 14 feet, which is over four meters long. Mm -hmm. Of course, anecdotal evidence suggests people saying, you know, oh, I saw one that was 15 feet. I saw one that was 16 feet. People embellishing a fish story. I was going to say, you know, like (laughs) this is a very popular sport fish. So you're going to get a lot of that. Uh Um, People saying 
you know, that they caught one that was 20 feet long and 3,000 pounds. But the females have been documented up to, you know, 14 feet and maxing out at nearly 2,000 pounds. The males are much smaller. Huh. Yeah. So the females get to be these massive sizes. You'll find them in warm waters in the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Oceans. They are pelagic, which means that they like wide open waters. You're not going to find them close to the shore. These are big fellas, right? Mm-hmm. Like they need a lot of space. So you're going to find them way, way, way out in the sort of open ocean. They also usually stick pretty close to the surface because that's where it's warmest. Mm. Um, they really like warm water. So they're going to be found close to the sun. So that they're swimming around in kind of the warmer water. Now, the populations of blue marlin that are found in the Atlantic and the Pacific regions are considered by some experts to be two distinct species. Hmm. So this one and then another one called Machaira Mazara. So the taxonomic family they belong to is called Istiophoridae. This includes 10 species, including sailfish. Okay. So sailfish are in their family. And then swordfish don't technically belong to the same family necessarily, but they're mm-hmm. really close cousins. What was the term you used earlier to describe? Billfish. Billfish, okay. Yeah, so billfish is kind of this name for marlins, swordfish, and sailfish. Like that whole group is called billfish. Mm-hmm. So-called because they all have that distinct long pointy bill. Oh. So when you think of a swordfish, you think of the sword on its nose. All of the billfish have that. Hmm. They just vary. So some of them are longer. Some of them are shorter. They come in different shapes. So like if you take a cross section of them, they'll mm-hmm. they'll look different and have different shapes. Is it bone? It is bone. Okay. Yeah. Actually, let's just get into it. Uh, <laughs> right. That's a good segue into effectiveness. I'm giving the blue marlin a full 10 out of 10. Okay. This is a just a marvel of engineering this fish is. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. So just I know what you want to hear about. You want to hear about the giant knife sticking out of their face. Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> so the science word for that is the rostrum. So not face knife. No, it's not the face knife. Dang it. I mean, you could call it that. The, <laughs> the important thing is that people know what you're talking about. Okay. If you say face knife, they're going to get it. <laughs> so the marlin's giant pointy nose is actually its upper jaw. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. So... Um, <laughs> What? What? I just imagined (laughs) something like Truck Shepherd where they just take the lip and just... (laughs) (laughs) That's not going to make sense. It's okay. It made sense to me. I like it. (laughs) So among the different species of billfish, like sailfish and swordfish, Mm -hmm. their rostra, which is the plural for rostra, um, come in different shapes and sizes that are better suited for different attack styles. Mm. So just like there are different blades made for different styles of fighting, same thing with these billfish. Their bills will be sort of shaped differently depending on how they attack their prey. Mm. Yeah. So swordfish bills are more flattened and have sharp edges on the sides. Okay. Like a like a broadsword, basically. So does that mean the sharp edges, are they pointing side to side or yes. up and down? The sharp parts are pointing side to side. Okay. So the idea is that the swordfish attacks by slashing side to uh, side. Ah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're doing like a left to right sort of slashing motion. Okay. But the blue marlin's bill is really different. It is more rounded like a tube that like tapers Uh, into a point at the end piercing damage yes well actually what it's more for is striking prey from a variety of different angles but they will spear prey by like impaling it with their bill okay 
yeah, it's it's not really clear how common that is. Or like, it's just not an accident. I was going to say, like, whether it's even intentional. But what's really interesting is that sometimes researchers will find inside of their stomachs, they will have eaten prey that has a hole in it that is suspiciously the exact size and shape of the marlin's bill. But... Here's the thing. How are they going to get that off? I thought the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> they they got the little T-Rex arms. <laughs> it's like it just stays here up. now. But they can just shake their head. Like they just shake their head side to side and, and dislodge it and then they can eat it up. It doesn't seem to be an issue. Okay. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> Does it just stay there till it decomposes? I was going to say like that would be really funny if they <laughs> if it was just stuck there. I have heard of swordfishes like having this problem where something that's too big will get stuck on their bill uh-huh. and it's just stuck there like permanently. I've heard of that being an issue, um, but I don't think it's super common, especially not like for things that they're just eating. It's called fashion. <laughs> it's decorative. <laughs> it's a hood ornament that they just put on there. But this is also really cool about their rostrum. Most billfish, including the blue marlin, have denticles. Yay! Yes, we love denticles. These are the teeny tiny little teeth like the ones on shark skin. Yes. And they just cover the rostrum, giving it this really sort of rough, bumpy texture. Mm. Probably serves about the same purpose as a shark's, you know, lets it move really fast. And it's really good for hydrodynamics. What the blue marlin is probably doing most with their rostrum, rather than just piercing things, is actually disrupting schools of fish. Mm. So imagine like a bait ball. So you've got this big, dense crowd of little fish that are all swimming in a big circle. That's meant to like throw off predators, basically kind of like either confuse them or just make it really difficult to like pick out one fish to prey on. Mm -hmm. So what the marlin will do is it'll swim into the dense school of fish and then kind of thrash around and whack the fish kind of out of formation (laughs) with its bill or it could even stun them so they could just become paralyzed and they can't keep swimming so the idea is really just to disrupt the school of fish and make it easier to pick off individuals makes sense yeah so for them it's not necessarily killing thing they're not using it to like impale their prey as much i mean you know, if it happens, it happens. But, <laughs> but you know, it's it's more about disrupting the flow of the school. You see this in Abzu, don't you? Yeah, there is a big bait ball in Abzu where you can see Marlin kind of swimming in and out. But I don't know if in Abzu they had the sophisticated yeah. enough animation to actually have it like knocking <laughs> mm-hmm. fish out of the way with its bill. But But that's what they do in real life. I got this information on their bills and how they use them and stuff from a really cool article titled Feeding Biomechanics in Billfishes Investigating the Role of the Rostrum Through Finite Element Analysis. And that was by M. Laura Habegger et al. Hmm. Published in the Anatomical Record Advances in Integrative Anatomy and Evolutionary Biology Whoa. in January 2019. Very cool. So Marlin and their cousins, particularly sailfish, are also known for reaching very high speeds Mm -hmm. they're super fast like that's like the thing you think of when you think of these fish is that they are really quick the sailfish which is another type of billfish is considered by most not all but most to be the fastest fish like in the world with speeds of almost 70 miles per hour that have been reported Mm mm-hmm 
Now, here's the thing. This goes back to the thing we talked about earlier. (laughs) (laughs) About how sometimes anecdotal evidence can be a little bit zhuzhed up a little bit, you know? So there was a 2016 study titled Maximum Swimming Speeds of Sailfish and Three Other Large Marine Predatory Fish Species Based on Muscle Contraction Time and Stride Length a Myth Revisited oh boy. yeah, by Morton Svensson et al. And this disputed that they would be capable of swimming that fast, right? Like 68 miles per hour. Sure. Suggesting that their muscles wouldn't even be capable of beating their tail fast enough to get that fast. The idea is that at that sort of speed, cavitation occurs and it actually begins to cause damage to their muscle tissues. Mm. And like they wouldn't be able to swim that fast. This is all kind of theoretical. So the idea is that they shouldn't be able to reach speeds as high as what's been claimed. This is kind of just like a big giant buzzkill of a study. (laughs) 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 But the point still stands that they're still very fast. So let's just focus on that. Don't worry about the numbers too much. It's okay. (laughs) So I want to talk about how they get that fast. They generate thrust in the water by moving their tail from side to side like a propeller. And their tail fins have these horizontal keels to boost their stability kind of keeps them from like spinning out in the water basically yeah it's like a pair of keels that kind of stick out from the sides of their tails it's really interesting their vertebrae are also like huge Mm. way bigger than in most other fish and they also interlock in a really interesting way they have like plates on them that kind of like jut into the next vertebra so they interlock in a way that just really makes them really strong and stable so it gives them this really rigid sort of body shape so that they're not flapping all over the place i guess basically (laughs) kind of keeps them sturdy when they're moving at high speeds Mm -hmm. they also have these huge powerful muscles that let them just like really zoom through the water they can go so fast that even at these like pushing 2,000 pound sizes they can jump completely out of the water wow which is an impressive feat considering how big they are yeah yeah it takes some serious momentum to get you know a body that big all the way out of the water and it's really impressive when it happens Mm -hmm. it's cool okay so when they're doing these sort of like bursts of speed and they're trying to like swim as fast as they can they can do this really cool thing behind their fins they have these grooves that are basically like little slots that they can fold their fins into making the fins completely flush with the rest of the body. Yeah, so it reduces drag and makes them more hydrodynamic so they can swim faster. Wow. Yeah, so they can basically go like full torpedo mode (laughs) and like retract their fins into their body to go extra fast. What's the trade-off though? I don't think there is one. Probably steering, I guess. But they're really good at steering. You know, they've got really long, like their dorsal fin is really tall and their pectoral fins are really long. So they're really good at. I guess what I meant was when they do flatten them against their body, what do they lose when they do that? I was thinking steering probably. I mean, that goes with anything that's going to be moving really, really fast. You know, it's going to be difficult to make a sharp turn. But especially if the things you would use to make that turn are now folded into the body. I'll talk about this in a few minutes, but there is sometimes where it seems like they are going so fast that they do not notice what's going on around them (laughs) Um, i'll talk about that in a minute fun yeah 
So what's important about this, like, kind of got to go fast lifestyle is that marlins, as well as other billfishes, breathe with a process called ram ventilation mm. that we've talked about with sharks. Yeah. This process relies on water actively flowing over their gills in order to get oxygen out of it. So this means that the fish needs to stay constantly moving 24-7 mm. in order to have enough water flowing over their gills to get air. Like, that's how they breathe is by moving. So you'll see them swimming around with their mouth wide open, and that's to kind of funnel water over their gills. Also, you know, if a little fishy fish falls in there, that would also be nice, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's like driving the, the roof down and then a bug lands in your mouth. But it's a little more intentional. It's <laughs> welcome. <laughs> <laughs> in addition to being super fast, mm -hmm. uh, when you're moving super fast, you need to kind of have a good sense of what's going on, like, in your surroundings, like, where you're going, where your prey is. So they have great vision. They have really large eyes for their body size that can move and focus very, very quickly. So it lets them see fast moving prey or prey that's, you know, in a big bait ball or something like that. And there's this really, really cool thing going on inside of their heads. Close to the base of their brain, they have specialized muscle cells. And these specialized muscle cells are just jam-packed with mitochondria. And what do you know about mitochondria? They are the powerhouse of the cell. They are. <laughs> so these cells are jam-packed with those powerhouse organelles, you know. And what this is doing is it's generating heat to warm up the fish's brain and eyes. Mm. So this is really important for when they dive. Because when they dive down into the water, it's like deep water to hunt for like squids and stuff like that, it's dark and it's cold. So when it gets really cold, these little heater cells mm -hmm. keep their brain and their eyes from slowing down because it's too cold. Mm. Yeah, they got a little space heater just like <laughs> lodged in their brain. How cool is that? It's a glove warmer. It's what? Like a glove warmer. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it helps them, you know, kind of stay on their A game even when they're sure. in really cold water, which I think is just really cool. Mm -hmm. They swallow their prey whole. Like they don't bother with like chewing or anything like that. Um, I feel like that's common for fish, but it's really funny considering that they're even <laughs> catching things like 200 pound tuna. Their primary prey is tuna, which tuna are huge. Huh. Yeah. And they're just like swallowing them whole. Chomp. They've got a spacious mouth, I guess. Cavernous, one would say. Do they have teeth? Yes, they do, but they're really, really, really small, and they're more, like, file-like. They have, like, small pointy teeth. Okay. It, I think it's more for keeping the prey in place once they've got it in their mouth. Yeah. But it's really more of just, like, a single swallow. Pretty impressive. They also, this is my last thing for effectiveness, but they grow mind-blowingly fast. Mm. So when they hatch as larvae, mm -hmm. they are so small that they are planktonic. Oh. They're measured in millimeters. They're so small. Mm -hmm. They're like microscopic. They can't even swim. They're so small. But within one year, they can grow up to six feet long. Wow. From being microscopic to six feet long. Huh. A, um, one to two years. They're they're really booking it. <laughs> they just hit fast forward on growing up. I think I've seen pictures. I think it was a sailfish, not a marlin, but I've I've seen pictures of very young sailfish, and it's interesting. It is because they don't have that bill right away. Yeah. They kind of grow into it. It's pointy, but it's not long. It's just a itty bitty. It's just a teeny little letter opener. <laughs> <laughs> it's so little, and they grow into it. But also, their eyes are like 
cartoonishly large when they're babies. <laughs> yeah. They're actually kind of cute, I think. But so, yeah, they kind of like hit fast forward on growing up, which I don't know, kind of wish I could have done that. <laughs> <laughs> kind of wish I could have uh, fast forwarded through some of those awkward teenage years. Sure. But, you know, that's their advantage, I guess. So that wraps up effectiveness for the Blue Marlin. These mm-hmm. are just powerhouses, absolute units. <laughs> Next category is ingenuity. I'm going to give them a 7 out of 10. Just decent. I already mentioned their hunting strategies, so I'm not going to go too much farther into that. They do something that is similar to the ocean sunfish that we covered a few episodes ago, mm. where they will throughout the day periodically dive deep into like deep cold water gobble up some squid and then they come back up and kind of like cruise along the surface to warm their body back up and then once they're warm enough they dive again Hmm. so they're kind of doing this like up and down up and down so that they're not getting too cold they're also migratory so they follow warm ocean currents they're Mm. just kind of going where the warm water is but they can really they migrate thousands of miles makes sense or something that's constantly moving Right. It's like, what are they going to do? Just sit there? No, you know, you got to keep moving. So they are known to seasonally migrate over vast distances, Mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. This was my deduction. I hinted at this earlier. There are many stories and quite a few actual videos online of marlins jumping into the boats. Oh, yeah. Of the people that are trying to catch them, Mm -hmm. which is counterintuitive, I believe. I mean... They're known for putting up a fight, right? They're yes. just fierce. Like they will really, it's a battle. You I mean, know, you're, you're talking to, hours. You're trying to fish up what is essentially a small car. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes when trying to, you know, battle with this fish, uh, the fish will just um, give up. I don't know. <laughs> the fish will just kind of jump into the boat. Like, I guess we're done here. See. <laughs> I interpret it differently. When I see those videos, that looks like going on the offense. <laughs> so that's the result, really, yeah. because like people get seriously injured. Yeah. And like the boat sinks sometimes. I mean, you suddenly have 2,000 more pounds on it. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like minus the- one or two people. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, you've got this 2,000-pound slab of muscle with a giant knife on the end of it. That is still thrashing. That is absolutely (laughs) flailing randomly. It's bad news. You do not want a marlin jumping in your boat, but uh, sometimes it just... I feel like if I was a fish, I would be trying to get away from the boat, but that's just me. Going too fast. (laughs) Going too fast, yeah. So I don't know if it's the sort of thing where, like, they can't tell that the boat is there and they're just trying to jump. Because I know that they'll kind of jump, I think, to sort of dislodge parasites and stuff like mm. that. So I wonder if maybe they think that the line is some sort of parasite or something that is attached to them. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if maybe they're jumping just to try to dislodge it, and then they just end up jumping into the boat. <laughs> so maybe they don't realize the boat is there. But yeah, I had to like dock a little bit for that, because that seems ill-advised. <laughs> seems like a for poor strategy. everyone. For every... That just... <laughs> It goes bad for everyone immediately. (laughs) Nobody wins in that situation. Uh, Final category for the Blue Marlin is aesthetics. I'm also giving it a 7 out of 10. Mm. I know there's people out there that would probably rate them much higher. If you're into fish, this is a spectacular fish. 
They have these like really beautiful, like I said, striking blue and white colors. They also have like stripes down yeah, the sides, yeah. um, which can be really, really pretty. Yeah, I just feel like they're majestic for a fish. Um, they do look cool when they're like jumping out of the water. That part is pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Blue marlin are, like I said, very popular game fish. They're caught by anglers for sport. But they are also eaten, particularly in Japan, as sashimi. So you you can't eat them. And I mean, one fish that yields like a lot of meat. So, yeah. You know, make the most of it. Um, the IUCN does list them as vulnerable with populations decreasing. And their biggest threat is commercial fishing vessels, particularly ones using long lines and gill nets. Mm. So these are commercial fishing boats that are dragging nets behind them in the water and just kind of catching whatever. Usually they are targeting other fish. So they're looking for tuna, right? right? Or something like that, that the marlins are also after, right? And the Mm. net cannot tell the difference between a tuna and a marlin. So they will also catch the marlins with them. By accident, they're caught as bycatch Mm -hmm. most often. Um, But the problem with that is that even though there are laws that say, you know, you have to throw back your bycatch, like if you catch something you weren't looking for, you need to put it back. The problem is that marlins are ram ventilators. So if they're caught in a net, they can't keep swimming. So by the time you notice that you've got one in your net, it's probably too late. Mm -hmm. So if you eat fish that are caught commercially like tuna, I guess the best thing you can do is really just try to buy from fisheries that use sustainable practices. There's a lot more information out there about like which fisheries use these more environmentally sustainable practices. If you're interested in that sort of thing please go check out the billfish foundation they have a lot of information about the conservation of marlins and what you can do to support sustainable fishing so go check them out over at billfish.org they have a lot of cool stuff over there that's also where i got a lot of this information so awesome. like, yeah go go check them out see what they're up to if you like that sort of thing and that is the blue marlin thanks honey of course Thank you for sitting here and listening to me geek out about this really cool fish. Real, real cool, big and fast fish. I know. I, you know, I have never like encountered one, and I'm not really a fishing person. Uh, I know a lot of people who are, but they are more like coastal fish. You know, like I don't know anybody that goes out and does you know ocean fishing. So I don't have any cool marlin stories, but if yeah, anybody listening does have a cool marlin story, please feel free to hit us up. It's always just seen as to be like the poster child of game fishing. I yeah, guess. it is definitely the sort of like uh, final achievement, the trophy. What is it? What do they call it? The Holy Grail. Well, thank you to everybody who has listened today. Thank you, Christian, for your awesome animal. If you liked what you heard today, it would really mean a lot to us if you could leave us a nice review on your podcatcher. Like a couple of people who left really sweet reviews on Apple Podcasts over the last week, we got some nice words from Wanchk, which is an interesting username, Wanchk, and Coleman Laura E., who I believe was the same person who requested the wombat. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I think so. I believe that's the same person. If not, I'm sorry. (laughs) But thank you both for leaving very sweet reviews. That is very nice. Um, We really appreciate those. If you have animals that you want to hear us review, you can shoot those to me. My email address is ellen at just the zoo of us.com. We're also on social media. So come check us out. We're on Twitter. We have a Facebook group. We're on Instagram. Uh, we have a discord 
Discord server. So, you know, come come hang out with us online. We would also like to say thank you to Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside their other wonderful shows like the ones that you heard promos for here today. Go check them out and learn more about the network over at MaximumFun.org. And while you're there, we would love it if you signed up for a membership to support us and the rest of the shows on the network. And finally, we'd like to thank Louis Zong for our funky fresh theme music Mm -hmm. uh that's all for today we'll see you next week thanks everybody thanks bye bye let's go play pokemon yeah MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.